From Santa Barbara, California, the Timeless Voyager series, where the knowledge is timeless and you are the Voyager. Interviews with leading-edge authors and speakers, psychic phenomena and the unexplained, UFOs, extraterrestrial encounters, government cover-ups, alternative health care, new technologies. Fasten your cosmic seatbelts and join me, your host, Bruce Stephen Holmes, the Timeless Voyager. Hello, everyone. Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager. Have you ever wondered if NASA and perhaps the U.S. government has been telling us the truth about space voyages to Mars? Well, my next guest, Andrew DiBajago, via telephone, is going to answer a lot of questions that you may have had. He is a lawyer writer, public speaker, media personality, and one of the first U.S. chrononauts from Project Pegasus during the advent of time travel, but especially for today's show, Project Mars. And he is here to speak about his personal experience on the Red Planet. So without further ado, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bruce. Good to be with you again. Um, you know, certainly we're going to find out by the end of today's show the truth I've been trying to share for quite a while, over 10 years, which is a lot of the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo missions of Mars, as well as the um, space shuttles, Skylab, and so forth, did happen. But while it was while they were happening the U.S. government was essentially disguising a broader array of activities in space. So it's not a question of did those 12 Americans walk on the moon, for example. It's what else were they doing? And, you know, in that uh, that famous speech he gave at Rice University in Texas, which, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, was September 12th of 1962, who are we talking about? Who are we talking about? President Kennedy. Oh, Kennedy. He gave that space right. speech at Rice, and he said, "We choose to go to the moon and do the other things." Well, wait a minute. They were always bragging about what NASA was doing. What was he talking about when he said, "And do the other things"? And all of that stuff was starting during the Kennedy administration. So, I think it's been you know that kind of that Bart Stabrell theory that we didn't even go to the moon. Mm-hmm. They they were they were just talking about some of their activities in space, and I got the uh, involved you know the opportunity to get involved with the new way they were getting to Mars and our activities there. They just never talked about it. Okay, so before we go any farther on this, let's maybe construct something so that people can have something to hold on to because this is this is going to be rough for a lot of people. Do you mind if I talk a little bit about those those eight modalities? Because there, I believe, at least a few of them were used in this Mars traveling. Well, at least one was, but yeah, you just want to take it from the top? 
Yeah, the first one you have up there is remote viewing, a uh, psychic type of time travel. Right, physical time travel. Yes, remote viewing was the kind of the first thing they involved us in for the Office of Naval Intelligence in sort of like uh, fall of 1969. You also have uh, number two, out-of-body astral time travel to different dimensions. Yeah, they, they spun us to induce uh, OBs, out-of-body experiences. Uh, then they talk, or at least in the list here, the Montauk Chair, which a lot of people have heard of. Right. That was the that was really the only major reverse engineered alien uh, device. It was the pilot seat that a particular ET species used to go through space and not hit anything because the pilot knew what it would be encountering. Hmm. And it was... It was ultimately developed into Project Montauk at Camp Hero in New York State, but we just called it the chair. But it did exist very early in my experiences in Project Pegasus. We just called it the chair. Hmm. Now, the next one was the uh, chronovisors, holographic time travel. Yeah, the, the chronovisors had been invented by the Vatican priests and musicologists um, Pellegrino Ernetti and Augustino Gemelli, also known as Pierre Maria Gemelli, that must have been his uh, clerical name. And we had to get involved with chronovision because in the case of teleportation, if there wasn't a teleporter where you were going in the past, you would be stuck there. But with chronovision, the hologram that it was based on would just collapse and you were back in the in the laboratory wherever that was located. And just to underline a few of those, let's talk about for a second how long ago that chronovisor existed. Well, it was originally a like, more of a flat TV screen that Ernetti Angelelli of the Catholic University of Milan, literally Vatican musicologists, accidentally discovered when they were studying why Gregorian chants had certain properties like healing properties or relaxation of calmness. And they were inventing a specialized microphone to split the voices and something that Jamelli's father said to him in childhood where he called him, his nickname for his little boy was my little zucchini. And they thought, wow, I'm hearing my dad here. What's going on? No connection to my, my discussion of my dad. So he actually, they actually, I'm sorry, in this particular case, they heard the voice, and then they heard that uh, uh, alluding to this very special nickname that no one would really know. And they discovered it sort of accidentally, because all they were trying to do was split the signals, and they then decided to um, collaborate with the leading Italian physicist of that generation, Enrico Fermi. And by 1952, they had like a chronovisor or you know, chronovisor that was a like TV screen to the past. But when I was brought in, like probably about 25 or at least 20 years later, around 1970, certainly 18 years after they had um, gotten that flat TV screen, they had pa- the, the Vatican had passed the, the chronovisor on to the U.S. Navy because 
the Navy had ambit over everything beyond the, the physical horizon. So they had the ambit over the time horizon, just as with the Philadelphia experiment, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so they um, they got with Fermi, and they had this flat screen by 1952, nine years before I was born. But when I came along in, in the program, it was around 1970. It was very early in the program. They had converted that, that flat screen chronovisor into a cubical form of light so that if we stood on the platform of what we call the chronovisor and it formed around us as a cube of light, maybe about a 20-foot by 20-foot cube of light, we would go to whatever moment in the past they were focusing inside that hologram. And I went to many places by a chronovisor. So the whole story told by Father Francois Brunet about the development by Ernetti and Gemelli of Il Cronivisor, the chronovisor, told in that Roman, that uh, Italian newspaper, I think it was published in Rome. That's absolutely the provenance of chronovision. All right, then uh, next on your list is the Tesla te- uh, teleporter. Uh, worm, yeah, 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 wormhole time travel and transport. Yeah, essentially... It was kind of two booms or armatures that were roughly the shape of like an, of elephant tusks. And there was rate, what Tesla called radiant energy kind of dribbling down like a public water sculpture. And left and right at like three-inch intervals were these little squiggles of bluish-green light. And, you know, my dad told me that when... We're going to jump through this, this, uh, these armatures of this device, this device. And, uh, we've got to do it quickly because we'll get injured if we don't. And on count of three, we did a number of dry runs and then we jumped through the device. And we just went through this sort of holographic tunnel is the best way I can describe it. That's known as a vortal tunnel within the time space community. Just for a second, let's let's uh, tell people why your father was involved. My dad was a Defense Department engineer. He had reporting requirements to virtually every U.S. agency, including CIA, but he's not a CIA agent. Um, and he was he had been a private first class as a combat medic and ambulance driver with the 13th Airborne Division during the war. But he was later made a major in what was known as the Second Reserve. The Second Reserve of the U.S. Army was going to step up and become our military and political leadership if we were overrun by, let's say, the Russian, you know, Soviet-Russian military, and our frontline leadership was captured or killed. A lot of our fathers were in that. They had these little order of battle directions they were supposed to follow if they were called up. My dad, you know, they looked sort of like a little Chinese fortune, cookie fortune, and they were in these little plastic containers. A lot of me, your listeners of the baby boom generation will actually remember, oh, that's what that was on my dad's dresser. Hmm. But mine was, in fact, my dad's dresser, and my brother and I took it apart, and he, he tried to put the paper for his order of battle back into that plastic uh, 
fortune cookie type container. So that was to, you know, I think it probably still exists. And then, it has been a civilian military. And then for so our listeners and the, and the, and the people that are watching this too worldwide, um, how old were you at this time? When I teleported the first time I was six so that my dad could meet with Harold Agnew, the, was then the, um, in the Debu division of the Los Alamos National Labs, the weapons division. That was around 1967. That's when we first teleported to me with Dr. Agnew. But Harold Agnew, who was a, a neat guy, I mean, he was very kind to me as a kid. Uh, Harold would become the director of Los Alamos National Labs in 1970, a position he would hold until roughly 1978. And when do you, so, when do you, I know that I'm kind of, well, I'm trying to get a lot of stuff for people to, to, to hold on to here. Tesla's teleporter, do you know roughly what year he brought that to the surface? Well, he died in 1943, and he left left plans that the, what was then called the War Department during the war, and of course the FBI were racing each other to get there. There's even been some indication that the John G. Trump, the uncle of President Donald John Trump, beat the, um, I think they beat the FBI there. And so Tesla's paperwork fell into the hands of the, what would later be called the Defense Department after the advent of the career of James Forrestal. He became our first Secretary of Defense. Or previously, that had always been, you know, the Secretary of War, the War Department. So Tesla died in 43, and in his records was something simply uh, labeled energetic array. So they built that device at Curtis Wright in Woodridge, New Jersey. And one of their personnel just walked through it and ended up in Africa. At least that was the story I was told. In other words, he teleported to Africa. His his assistant thought he had been disintegrated. And when that man did everything he could and succeeded at getting home from Africa, which was not an easy task because the African people who he appeared amidst right. <laughs> like a god or something. They yeah. couldn't understand what's happening. That naturally understandable. And because the world hadn't seen teleportation. I think we still haven't seen it, <laughs> except on TV. It has been released, but <laughs> it exists. And so inside of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, they had called it a Tesla Energetic Array. Madeleine Engel, in her book, A Wrinkle in Time, which was disinformation, called it a tesseract for Tesla energetic array. And that's essentially what what I'm calling the Tesla teleporter. You went through the fabric of time space in a vortal tunnel in time space, essentially a a tube of light. Hmm. And... uh, but yet you had to, you had to jump through at a meter per second or you'd be dismembered. So there was danger wow. in the program, but fortunately I was not injured. I had one neighborhood playmate and friend uh, been kept back, but he was still put in, uh, in Pegasus who lost his feet teleporting to Santa Fe. I know who that is. Um, I've had a couple of people who teleport with me come forward publicly. Especially important was my appearance with Mark DePrimo, who was four four years older than me, and uh, he jumped. 
he and a group of other boys jumped to New Mexico with me, I, I believe, in 1972. All right. So, so oh, go ahead. Um, well, I was going to just well, so. I mean, I brought forward others who, who went in the Tesla teleporter. It's not some urban legend. I have witnesses who were witness participants of my teleportation, and they shared it. Hmm. You know. All right, then uh, Stargate, advanced yeah, teleporter. Mm-hmm. Is that Stargate? I, I don't know exactly what it was doing, but it was like a big black anvil, and it was on the basketball court at the Surreal's Cultural Center in 1972. And it was that device by which we jumped about 75 years from 19. 19- 72 to 2045. Hmm. So now it's what? It's 2023, 22 more years, and I've already been to 2045. Now, if we, I, I mean this, I don't mean this lightly, but just a thought. So if some people were to gather around that, um, it's an anvil, you say? Would they? It was like a big black object. With different solenoids and valves and all kinds of stuff that because I was a kid and not a brilliant electrical engineer, mathematician, physicist, like President Trump's uncle, like my dad, these were very advanced employees of the U.S. Defense Department. Mm -hmm. Harold Agnew was essentially the quintessential Project Manhattan participant. He had done everything in the project to build and test and drop the bomb Hmm. on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He even took the, um, what was it called? The, uh, he he took the nuclear trigger for the Hiroshima bomb from Los Alamos to the island of Tinian. After working on CP1 at the University of Chicago, that project to take the atomic pile critical and working on the design the building and the testing of the atomic bomb. So this was the atomic research community that developed time travel. That's what they concealed. They thought after the war, they thought, well, how do we play this? And there was a decision inside the U S government. Let's make all the other countries aware that we have this ferocious weapon, but not reveal to them that we have time travel. So, I think that was the, the, the critical decision that was made. Let's let's brag about the bomb and then the the H bomb of Edward Teller, you know, hydrogen bomb. But let's not tell them about our our intelligence advantage from knowing things that are gonna happen. Maybe not everything, but having a predictive function. So let me let me ask the question I was gonna ask. So if a group of people were to be able to be near that device at the time that you would have gone through, would you appear to them? If, if somebody was in 2045, right? That's what I'm saying. Through the Stargate, I would just be a, just like with the teleporter back in New Jersey that we're using to jump to New Mexico. They would see me just pop into view. That's it. That's exactly what, what I was asking. What would change though is. When I would arrive in 2045, I was either right at the building I had to walk into or even as much as a mile away from it because they couldn't really pinpoint specifically where in 2445 in the area of that building I would pop into view in mm. 2040. But then I was getting home by taking a, a Tesla teleporter that was essentially recessed into the wall. 
they also gave me a tour of teleportation in that time period. Hmm. And it was really advanced. I mean, it's, it's going to be a world in which, for example, you can <laughs> jump from a teleporter in an elevator in, in one part of the country or world and jump out, get, get out at another, you know, you, uh, you know, you can arrive via teleportation and then, you know, get out in another city. In other words, the whole world is going to be assisted by teleportation. Hmm. That's where myself, Brett Stillings, Bernard Mendez, um, William Cameron McCool, Regina Elvira Dugan, that President Obama would name the first female and historically the 19th director of DARPA on July 20th of 2009. So we're going to Dugan, President Obama. That is a true story about his involvement. Um, and But he and his mother or caretaker, Stanley Ann Dunham, knew he was going to be a president, which was the same kind of experience I had with both Bushes and President uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, you know, so Bush 41, Bush 43, and, and Clinton. I had meals with them right after they were told they were going to be president. I also met uh, Vice President uh, Richard Bruce Cheney. So that's the world we've actually been living in, where for, for, for 50 years, future presidents and vice presidents have been apprised of their destiny, not made, made president or vice president, like, you know, appointment of a king or whatever, but just they've been allowed to acclimate to the news that that's what they're going to be. And that was also done with President Obama. He went on the Colbert Report and admitted there was a secret space program, but then took the rather safe position of, but I can't talk about it. So we've gotten pretty advanced with the truth about Mars. The Israeli general Haim Ashed revealed the American presence on Mars on December 9th of 2020. And after he received my letter on in July of uh, 2020, President Obama essentially said there was a secret space program, but he couldn't talk about it. I was almost tantamount to admitting that our claims were true all along, and, and they were true. And we actually had lengthy discussions. Basically, my fellow uh, astronauts, William Brett Stillings, Bernard Mendes, and myself, with input from the truth advocate and founder of exopolitics, Alfred Lambert Weber. And essentially where that conversation went is, look, if we don't tell the truth that President Obama was one of the Mars visitors, the, Mars, the, the red planet voyagers, if, if you'll excuse that expression, Everybody's going to think, well, we were just hiding his truth for him. We were working for the CIA and concealing his connection to some of these these government agencies. But he was an honorable colleague, um, and so I, we continued to tell the truth. And we said, okay, let's let's talk about the person he really was back when he was 18, 19, 20 years old, when we knew him. Let's not be resentful of the fact that he's concealing his involvement in this program. And yet coming forward would have been of inestimable value to us. Let's just continue to share our truth and give him the opportunity to ultimately come forward. And that kind of came from the fact that Bernard Mendez had spoken to President Obama through an intermediary. 
And his initial response, which never really came directly from him, was, I remember the program. I remember Andy vividly as a, a friend, a colleague, a roommate for a short period of time. But it all seems vague and dreamlike. And that was an honest answer. I mean, I think to that extent, President Obama was really being honest, uh, being truthful, because we had had our memories blocked by what was called the Soviet, it was the reverse engineer American version of a Soviet Russian device called the LIDA machine that essentially made a bunch of garish images and hideous noises. And those of us who came forward first on Mars, well, actually, it was the, we were the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth uh, after Michael C. Rolf and Arthur Neumann. We did not remember our experiences on Mars for 25 years. So I don't think we're going to be too bitter about President Obama's initial uh, mockery of our claims because it was really hard to remember. Our memories had been suppressed so we wouldn't talk about uh, the, the program. But I did talk about where we were jumping to Mars to one of my um, one of my colleagues on the UCLA Daily Bruin, our, our school newspaper, and I'm fairly sure that that was Terry Lee Jones, who would go on to a career with Investors Business Daily, you know, Bill O'Neill's uh, publication, with all that sophisticated uh, stuff about stocks and bonds. People who really used to play it, you know, for their investments. And then he told my fellow uh, undergraduate who was um, a co-ed named Ann Kopecky, because I ran into Ann at the place we were going to the jump room. The jump room was located in El Segundo at 999 North Sepulveda. We would go into the center of that building, up to the fifth floor. We'd walk out where there was kind of a Fijian suite, as we say on the law, and there was a guy from the CIA there, and we would give our name, our signature, our social security number, our date of birth, and a special number we had for the program. Mine was conveniently my UCLA ID number, 700-414-879. And then we would go back into the elevator, and we would go, if we had anything to share with Major Ed Dames, we would stop at his office on the sixth floor. We would then get back into the elevator and go up to the seventh floor where our lockers were. That's where I pick up my my photo flash gun that I would take to Mars because I was one of the astronauts who was trusted with a weapon uh, to protect myself and my colleagues from predators. Although we told, we were told we could choose to die on the surface of Mars if we didn't want to risk interplanetary war or kill creatures from another planet, whether they were humanoid or animal or whatever. And I didn't, I did, ended up not using that device on anything except a rock on the surface and it caused some water to bubble out of the rock. So before you keep going, let's, let's slow down for a second. Can you tell me and of course the listeners a little bit about the experiences that you do remember on the planet that obviously we wouldn't know anything about because we've either the, either this information has been suppressed and hopefully you have some information that you can give to us. 
Well, Mars is what uh, Richard C. Hoagland uh, has has stated it is, um, as, as repeated by Robert Morningstar and others. It's basically a vast, muddy wasteland. It's a dry, muddy wasteland resulting from the solar system catastrophe of 9,500 B.C. That was 11,500 years ago. That was some kind of celestial event that melted the polar ice caps on this planet and produced the flood of Noah and the Bible and in the Epic of Gilgamesh, another ancient scripture. Um, That really happened. It flooded our planet. And so both of our planets were relatively damaged by that event, whatever it is. Um, we don't really know what it, what it was. Um, and, and, and so Mars is in no way as, as rich and beautiful and healthy a planet as ours. It is an inhabited planet. There are two humanoid species and probably five or six predatory animals. So let's look at the humans first. One were the descendants of our ancestors who went there during the the high Egyptian civilization. That's why there are things like pyramids and statues of pharaohs on the surface. So Mars has a kind of a an Egyptian legacy from a high Egyptian epoch of civilization. Um, the, the descendants of our ancestors on Mars, when there was a three-way confederation between the Earth, Mars, and that planet that got destroyed and formed the asteroid belt, which has been called Mal- Marduk, Maldek, or Tiamat, which is probably my favorite word for that. Right, that's the, the water planet. Yeah, or it was the... It was the planet that existed when Sir Isaac Newton said there should have been a planet there mm-hmm. and was destroyed. You know, the math indicated there should be a planet where the asteroid belt is. Um, so the ones that survived all that flooding and mud and everything were just as strong as any contemporary male human, for example. A, a person who would look like the bald men... Um, kind of blocky-headed bald males that many of those humanoids are. You know, t- rather tall, muscular, strong, and quite fit, quite manly, although there was... I met three of those at an air base in New Jersey in 1970. My dad took me over there, and they were visiting Earth. Two of them looked like that, kind of that, that you know, ball, strong, ball, ball bald male human look. But one looked like sort of Larry Neal of the Three Stooges. Mm. He was more sort of intellectual looking and kind of goofy looking. They all three of them had devices to deal with our our oxygen level. Mars has much less oxygen than ours. We often got the condition known as hypoxia. We would get but under that condition there wasn't enough oxygen and we would get screaming pains in our legs, but also uh, tunnel vision from, and I got, I got that a couple of times, both of those 
maybe my current vision loss is actually from going to Mars. I don't know. Uh, but my eyes were affected when I was on the surface. Um, so they look a lot like us, but because they kind of dug their way out of that disaster on that planet, even though they were from this one originally, um, they don't really look exactly like us. Their musculature is a little different if you look at it from, let's say, behind, the way the shoulder looks, the muscles, the back. But they look basically like very fit contemporary humans. We call them Homo martis teres for Earthman on Mars. There are supposedly females of that species, but I never saw any on the red planet or on Earth. That's just the way things happen. You know, you don't see, you know, if we were to fly to New York today, we wouldn't see a history of, of New York City. We wouldn't see, for example, everybody who lives there or has ever lived there. So it's just the luck of the draw that I just, in my life, ended up seeing, um, you know, female humans from this planet as well as male female and male from the second type, the homo martis, martis, that's Martian man or woman on Mars. But on Earth and then there, I only saw male males of that of that species. And the second type, are, I believe, we were never really told, but I believe they were the original Martians. After I did my paper, Discovery of Life on Mars in 2008, Virginia Olds of the CIA, who I knew in Project Pegasus, congratulated me and he said or she said you know they they are cooperative and are living predominantly underground so i saw a number of children and a number of women of that species of humanoid on the red planet i ultimately had a mission there where i'd have to take this floppy disk you know when he started calling those three and a quarter inch plastic disks floppy disks yeah. Because of the original ones that were floppies. Right. <laughs> well, like 10 years before they came out in the commercial or civilian sector, I would go for my studies at UCLA and I would go over to a print shop in Santa Monica. And the, one of the, the print men there, you know, the, the, uh, the technicians of the printing that was going on in that print shop would give me a floppy from Rand Corporation of Santa Monica. It was my mission to then drive down to El Segundo, go up the jump room to a particular jump room facility that we called the corkscrew, walk out of the corkscrew across this old city on the surface of the red planet that that was made basically of dilapidated uh, bricks and walk through that. And I would enter a dilapidated uh, building where this American technician was sitting there. My mission was basically to hand it to him. I would try to talk to the guy, but we would call him Daryl Dragon for Tony Tennille's husband, who, as you may remember in the music industry, was a very taciturn fellow. He didn't really have a lot of a lot of things to say. It was just his personality. So I never even found that guy's name out, but I had to say, how are you doing? Here it is, and just turn around and go back to the corkscrew. And from there, back to El Segundo, and from there, back to UCLA. So that was a lot of what my college years actually were. I'm amazed I got like a a B-plus average. Yeah, I was going to say, how did you graduate? <laughs> this is crazy. But there was so much weirdness going on in my life. I look back and I think, how did I graduate? But I did finally got out after five years of college, but four years at UCLA as a history major. But I was 
I was going up to Mars in, let's say, 50% of the time. The other half I was spending taking my classes at UCLA. But I did let slip to my to my Daily Brewing colleagues. And I wondered for years what Ann Kopecky was doing down there. Um, and I was, oh, my God, I told Terry Lee Jones. And, and Terry Lee was a graduate student in urban planning. Um, so he just came over to me and kind of like asked me, okay, sir, go, you're going to Mars. Where are you going to Mars from? And it must have, it must have been he who then told Ann Kopecky. I remember Ann was the girlfriend of the brilliant writer, Jonathan Cassini, who did Bernie Sanders uh, campaign book and a number of other books about the labor movement. So I'm looking really for those people, Terry Lee Jones and Kopecky and Jonathan Cassini. Um, to ask them, do they remember that they, you know, broke the lead, but didn't share it in the new, in the news, but they did do more research. And I ran into Ann down there at 999 North Sepulveda. I, I remember, you know, for years I thought, what was one of the Bruins, you know, members of the Daily Bruin, one of my classmates working for the Bruin, how was she showing up at 999 North Sepulveda? <clears throat> the very place that where I was going to Mars. And I, I, I really couldn't figure it out. And I thought somebody had told them, and it was me. <laughs> I'm very obsessed with this issue because we really don't know our past. The Mars program was 40 years ago. I'm now 61 years of age. Sure. And I always had a great memory. And I did a lot of work before law school to try to make it as a writer, a lot. I even ended up working for, and essentially becoming the, the protege of Norman Cousins mm-hmm. of Saturday Review, who was a great guy and taught me a lot about writing and a lot about thinking. But I couldn't ever figure out, when I look back, find the location where I was going to Mars. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, 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 it's, it's interesting because uh, many times when I think about this stuff, when I talk to people who have had experiences, they may not be exactly like yours, but similar, There's there's this... Um, non-continuation, non-continuity. Yeah, yeah. And, and because the Soviet leading machine had been used on us and succeeded yeah. at suppressing our memories for 25 years so that the President of the United States was denying our claims, even though we were simply just telling the truth. And he kind of admitted that it was vague and dreamlike, so that's kind of what all of us experienced. Yeah. But then as I came into possession of my Mars memories, I talked to all of the people coming forward. Hmm. Uh, Stillings, Mendez, White Crow, Johnston. And I even began lauding some of the younger experiencers like Randy Kramer and Corey Good, because I just wanted to leave open the possibility that they also were telling the truth. I didn't want to censor somebody else's experiences. We were truth-tellers. We were experientialists. We were sharing our experiences and didn't want to suppress those of uh, those we would initially not believe when we keep an open mind. Well, you're also running into that classmate from the Bruin, one of literally my co-writers, and think, how did she find out where I was going to Mars? Not that I remembered. I, I told somebody else on the Bruin, and he must have told her. So just as a rookie reporter, we were breaking one of the biggest secrets in the country. As rookie reporters, we were 
just shows young people and college students that you can do significant reporting. There were at least three people on the Bruin who knew that I was going to Mars. Myself and Kapeki and Terry Lee Jones, hmm. who went into a career in journalism. Um, mine was sort of all over the place in writing. But, you know, some people had bona fide careers that the Bruin and their graduate degrees led to. And um, I believe that's what's happened. But after 40 years, all I know is that it did happen. And uh, I think that's something that's important to remember about memory. It's it's imprecise. Well, it's, we also, memories of it's also selective. I mean, as much as we all want to try to find out the answer, there are parts of our ego that are either suppressing it or if the possibility is that it's gone, too. Um, before we run out of time, what I'd like to ask you is this. Um, and we're talking about your, your memory of certain things, so uh, maybe this is within the realms of, of the continuity, maybe not. But from what you can gather, how many, how many times do you think you were on the planet and were you staying, let's say, in a particular facility there, or did you just jump back? That's just kind of well. We were we were called we were what what was called VIPs, very important persons, which really was just an excuse that there were lifers on the surface. Probably people who had been doing time in like Leavenworth Prison for the military for first degree murder, or something really really serious. We we had to basically go up there. And spend as little as like 15 minutes and as long as a day, but we never slept there. They did. They were stuck there. In fact, that's the person that Courtney Hunt and I visited on my second jump. But the number of times that went up, I can estimate it at about 20. Uh, but that's imprecise. But that, that was very, just that, just that is very interesting because uh, until you said that, uh, the idea that there were people that hadn't been up there, we don't know how we don't know how long they've been there. Maybe they're still there. And that's a, that's an important point. Yeah, they were. The, the one guy begged us to let Courtney and I take him home, and he and, and uh, he said, uh, "Sorry, Howard, I've got to take Andy home." But he was really stuck there. He was surviving like on canned goods. And he started scrambling away from his front door when Courtney and I walked through his front door. Uh, some of the lifers had these little cottages that they cobbled out of, of of stones from the surface. But in addition to those two groups of humanoids, well, I, I met one of the second types. He was male, and he took Courtney and I on a tour of his underground lair or residence. It had sort of pneumatic tubing for its devices and kind of a paisley design on the ceiling. Uh, I saw a lot of the um, the women and children of that second type as well. The, the best way I can describe their appearance is imagine any Tibetan in a caftan, child or adult, but in the case of the adults with multiple appendages. So these were like, for the most part, they were, they kind of remember, reminded me of that famous image from Hiroshima, that little poor little kid in that in that caftan who'd been affected by the blast. That's kind of what the kids looked like. But the the the, the females of that type looked like t- Tibetan females, but they could have any they could have two, four, or six arms. 
or mm. kind of just, but I was, I was never approached by that type. We were approached by a male of that species to see if, to see where they lived. But so they were sort of using that dilapidated brick city to come up from the underground and like, look at us. But see, we were told that that type occasionally cannibalized one of we astronauts. I was really wary of that type. Oh yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you're a source, as a different species, just like we might (laughs) have some monkey steak or something. Right. And when you're a source of food, it makes you a little bit leery of the people that are looking at you. Uh, Except for that type of humanoid, we were warned to be, to be careful around and actually run in zigzag patterns. If we ever got cornered by two types of, um, of creatures, um, one was looked like, uh, a kind of a grasshopper with multiple appendages, hmm. maybe 10 or 12 appendages and big saber teeth. So those are ins- the insectoids. Well, I'm going to describe the other ones because this sure. has been miscontextualized okay. by people who claim they've been to Mars who haven't been there. So let me put it on the record the way that NASA should have. <laughs> um, the other type were, um, they look sort of like 16-foot tall velociraptors, but they didn't really have sleek heads. They had kind of like T-Rex or even chicken-like heads. And they were fast. They were like 70-mile-per-hour type creatures. And we were told if either of those species got anywhere near us, to just start running around in circles to avoid being eaten. Hmm. I actually saw two of my colleagues killed, one eaten, by the the uh, the velociraptor type, the, the basically um, dinosaur-like ones. But they were not bipedal creatures. And so the Mars claimants have been saying that those two inevitably uh, lethal predators were bipedal, were two-legged, confused the the points I've just made about the two humanoid species on Mars and the two predators, the, the kind of grasshopper about the size of a small garbage truck and the, uh, velociraptor type dinosaurs but they were fast and fortunately brett stillings and i ran away from the um the uh grasshopper type one it was around a a rock and we actually just kind of walked a few steps of time around it and i was yelling to brett brett my psychic ability is telling me there's something around that rock and then when brett saw i said okay at the count of three brett run in the direction that i am and run like hell because our lives are going to depend on it. Ready? One, two, three. And we started running with all of our, you know, my uh, 20-year-old Gusto and Brett's 14-year-old Gusto. And Brett is a courageous uh, astronaut. He's probably the youngest American astronaut in space and on another planet. And also I'd, I'd like to talk about the fact that my father and I may very well be the first either Americans or humans from this planet together as father and son on another celestial body. I don't know. We were never told stuff like that Hmm. in the Intel community in the military. When something's going to give you a big head and you have to be humble and essentially try to perform what you've been told to perform ably and well, you're never told anything. that's going to give you a a big ego. Hmm. So I don't know, but there was certainly evidence that that was the case. And, 
I don't even know how many people were up there. William White Crow said every time we were up there, it was 1,500 Americans. But then Bernie Mendez, who also had military ties, uh, told me it was there was just 40, just 40 participants. Well, whatever whatever the number is, yeah, or Moscow, right? The statue of us that's supposed to be up there is whatever the number is. That means that there's intelligent life on Mars. Yes, yes, there was, and you know, now that uh, General Ashed of Israel has announced that, I mean, I can't see why an Israeli general would make something up about Americans on on the red planet. My my phone began ringing off the hook when he made that announcement because hmm. I said, Andy, this is it. It proves your case. And I said, I, I think it does. When a general from another major power states that there's American astronauts interacting with ETs on Mars, isn't that the dispositive of the truth asserted? Why would they try to get America and you know, the United States of America mad at them if it was a myth? If it was a myth that we were telling, <laughs> why would an Israeli general voice it? I think that well, as the head of the Israeli Space Force, that General Shit is a little bit smarter than that. Well, this is, so, this is a great way to end this segment of the show, because frankly, um, that's a beautiful, a beautiful way to present evidence that this whole thing is probably true. Any comments? I'm speaking for the so-called, you know, secret space program, because I think that one thing that derogated our our experiences and our telling of the truth was that a kind of, kind of a new form of science fiction began, where everybody tried to top us with more elaborate stories. It became sort of a kind of one-upsmanship. And of course, if you're not telling the truth, that's actually a red flag that indicates that one-upsmanship rather than what simply what happened is a desire to be believed when your story's untrue. Uh, you know, there's those who said, well, I, uh, I didn't just have my arm torn off that miraculous kink got back on, which is one of my details of my experiences up there. But, you know, I, I got torn up into a, you know, a cellular level. But look, if somebody gets literally torn up cell by cell, then that ends their metabolic functioning. Um, so there, there have been things that people have been claiming that are so far out and even impossible that I'm not advocating the movement that has taken the term secret space program, although I was happy to see President Obama use that term because uh, that's what it was. But um, I'm just talking about the original people who came forward and, and what what truth has now been shared by the, the, the Air Force general, who was a brilliant scientist and the head of their, essentially their secret space program, Haim Ashed. Why would he affirm that if it were not true? Well, I'm glad that he did affirm it because... Uh, it, it gives a little bit of credence to the to the stories that we've been listening to. Um, Andrew, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Okay. But I want to say this. Thank you so much for two things. First, for and I and I and I mean this in a in a uh, very very important way. 
Thank you for your service. Unfortunately, the second thing is, your service was so unbelievable that you can't be thanked by people because no one knows what what happened. And for that, I'm sorry, and I apologize for the nation if that's possible. Well, thank you. That's that, I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, in both programs, but particularly on the Mars program, they basically got us to go by saying it's the highest form of service to do things for the American people who will never know your name. But after a certain point in my life, I decided to tell. And I think it really was a major blow for the truth. And I think the truth is more important than just, you know, having secret programs like this. I've been fighting essentially the abuse of official state secrecy. The space program, for example, had as its primary mission uh, sharing uh, sharing information about the space and the near-Earth environment. So there never should have been a secret space program, but there was. And so the way to look at what you were told is that's what they were telling you, that the critical... The current idea is not that that we didn't go to the moon. It's what else we did. Hmm. And those guys had walked on the moon. So we did land on the moon. The question is, what was President Kennedy talking about on September 12th of 1962? We choose to go to the moon and do the other things. Well, he wasn't talking about building nuclear weapons. That, that would make sense because, you know, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. It wasn't hard to make nuclear weapons. They were just very destructive. So he had to be talking about something besides going to the moon. And I believe he had been briefed on the ultimate intent to take the Ark to the Red Planet. They just didn't want to announce it for some reason. Quite frankly, I don't even know why they didn't. Hmm. Um, Probably we were going to... um, we were probably going to take the high road vis-a-vis the moon by putting American astronauts on Mars. That would probably be why Courtney Hunt of CIA told me that the reason I should agree to go is because because the survival of human life on Earth depends on it. So I think the Mars program is all kind of tied up in the ET situation. Hmm. All right. Well, we are absolutely out of time. Hi, <laughs> Andrew. Thank you so much. Um, thank, thank you for that kind note, uh, Bruce. I really appreciate it. All right. And for the rest of us here today, i just like to say a few things. One, thank you for listening to the Timeless Voyager series. You know, I, I really appreciate you watching and listening to the series on both video and audio players. One thing that you can do for me as the founder and creator of Timeless Voyager, is to hit that like button. Also, please subscribe. It really helps to keep me on the air so that I can keep producing content like the program you just watched on a regular basis. You know, subscribing and liking are free, and there's no obligation. Uh, It's a very small action on your part, and so it's greatly appreciated. My name is Bruce Stephen Holmes. And I hope that your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous 
and successful one.